there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. It's not a slow drip, it's a fast. It is a fast process of diminution of the quality uh, of journalism. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Scone Literary Festival. With Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. This session is history, politics and big interviews with Kerry O'Brien in conversation with Philip Adams. Well, everybody, welcome to the Scone Literary Festival 2020 and may we have the vision to make 2020 the best year of all. It's a, a pleasure to have, welcome all our audience members without whom we'd feel rather foolish if you didn't turn up. Also, welcome to the guests, authors and all the volunteers and the committee to make this event happen. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of this land, all nations that live on this land, both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, its knowledge, holders and its elders past and present. I'd like to introduce our most important guest, our most super important person. And you know him. He's the patron of this festival since the beginning. Is this true? Oh. Recent. Someone's been lying to me. <laughs> All right. Well, our, this particular patron I have to introduce because he's uh, just a phenomenal human being. Uh, Philip Adams. A local farmer, the ABC's oldest broadcaster, Australia's longest-running newspaper columnist for dozens of newspapers and mags here and overseas for over 60 years, a member of the Media Hall of Fame, two, not one, but two Orders of Australia, six honorary doctorates from around Australian universities, one of Australia's 100 national treasures, Let's hope I don't lose the key. <laughs> Author of 15 books, maker of 12 feature films, and besides all that, ladies and gentlemen, he is probably the only person in Scone to have a planet named after him. You can check that through Wikipedia if you like. <sighs> Unfortunately, though, Philip did not go on to matriculate from Eltham High School and subsequently found it difficult to be at times gayfully employed. Until today, where he has cheerfully agreed to be the patron of the Scone Literary Festival. Ladies and gentlemen, to cut the ribbon, Philip Adams. May you live in interesting times. Now, I always assumed that that was a Chinese curse. But knowing that Kerry was here, who had absolute classic training in journalism, I've got to check my facts, and I find it is absolutely untrue. It wasn't said by Confucius or any other great uh, Chinese sage. It seems to have entered English via, the, uh, via British politics, but it is still a deadly coinage, isn't it? May you live in interesting times, and as we are all agreeing, times have never been more interesting. We're dealing with uh, the various 
symptoms of climate change, drought, bushfires, floods. We've smelt the stench of death from fish kills. We can smell the stench of corruption in the air if we uh, think about local politics. We are facing the possibility of a of a virus that will echo the flu epidemic of 1917, killed at least 50 million. The collapse of tourism, local and international, entire nations in quarantine, self-isolation for millions, mostly who can't afford it. Millions unemployed. It's clear that the recession is already having a far greater impact than the GFC. And as we've been reminded already, the cancellation of Every public event, from the Royal Show, sadly, Mount Everest is closed, would you believe? How extraordinary is that? And it is likely, of course, that the, they'll have to close down the Olympics. Even the new James Bond film has been pulled. It was unfortunately entitled No Time to Die. Tom Hanks, I, I, I've already publicly apologised to Tom elsewhere. He didn't listen to me. I said, never, never go near a Baz Luhrmann film. <laughs> I've made that a, a lifelong rule and I, and I suggest you follow it. Um, of course, the big news at the moment, I think it's, it's great to have a virus with a sense of humour. The big news is Dutton. As we sit here, Dutton's, Dutton's uh, disease status is huge news in America because he spent a lot of time, no joke, with Ivanka and with uh, the President's uh, Attorney General Barr. And so America is now in a panic because of Dutton. <laughs> and God knows what the retaliation of that will be. But... Uh, so we've got Dutton, we've got the British Minister for Health, for God's sake. <laughs> we've got Mrs Trudeau. In fact, you know, this, it's a very, very smart, a very intelligent virus. <laughs> Donald Trump, as you know, called it a hoax <laughs> or a Democrat plot against his administration. Many on Fox News still do, quite seriously. He now concedes that his mad American-Mexican wall can't keep it up. And as you know, he's closed the US borders to anyone from Europe. And did I mention the most serious problem of all? Toilet rolls. <laughs> President Trump is, ma is massing toilet rolls in the White House, in the Oval Office, because he's shitting himself over Joe Biden. <laughs> so yes, we do live in interesting times. But that will not stop us having an interesting time here in Scone. Now, despite the disappearance of uh, some guests, we uh, must congratulate all of you with the courage to attend. Congratulations to our courageous organisers and brave authors. I think it's interesting, and it hasn't been mentioned yet, but, of course, our president has actually written a book on, um, on crisis management. So <laughs> how lucky are we there? So I welcome you all, and uh, though everything else in the world is closing down, even the Olympics, in the spirit of the Olympics, let the games begin. And I declare us well and truly open. Thank you.
take, take this in your right hand and say after me. <laughs> the truth, the whole truth and nothing, and but, nothing the truth. but the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, I have to give you another health warning. Not about the virus, but about the bloke I'm about to interview, <laughs> Kerry O'Brien. And not because of his associations with that dangerous organisation, the ABC, or about his political proclivities. It's about his ethnic origins. It's about the Irish. <laughs> Kerry O'Brien. You couldn't get a more dangerously Irish name than that, could you? With the possible exception of Ned Kelly. We are, of course, a diasporian culture. It's sometimes argued that Melbourne is the third largest Greek city in the world after Athens and Salonika. The Greek diaspora in Australia is enormous and as Pauline Hanson has been warning us for years, the Chinese diaspora poses an interesting prospect, as is the weaponised virus currently causing concern. Now, the Irish began coming to Australia in the late 18th century as criminals, with many prisoners of war, mainly of those who fought in the Irish Rebellion for Independence. Their numbers were swelled by uh, victims of the potato famine. Troublemakers, one and all. I uh, mentioned Ned Kelly, but think of Peter Layla, the firebrand at uh, Eureka Stockade. Think of Paul Keating. And it's no coincidence that O'Brien and Keating wrote a bestseller together. And uh, Keating isn't the only PM of Irish background. You can add John Curtin, Ben Chifley, Arthur Corr, even Kevin Rudd to that list. And I've written in the past about almost all the indigenous leadership here have Irish names. Lewitcha O'Donoghue, Patton McDotson, on and on it goes. So yes, a health warning against Red Kerry. And the Red isn't about his political leanings, but about the famous hair and famous freckles. <laughs> as Irish as Guinness. And it produces in Kerry O'Brien a feistiness that is legendary. Now today's interrogators on television are, I'm afraid, a pretty wishy-washy lot compared to O'Brien. For a politician to risk going on 7.30 report was tantamount to a Christian entering the lion's den, the O'Brien's den, from whence few escaped unscathed. And in recent weeks, I've noted, and I must say, with considerable approval, Kerry's raging indignation against what he sees as ongoing attempts to crush the ABC, to hand Julian Assange over to the cruelties of the American judicial system. Ladies and gentlemen, if there's something worth fighting for, Kerry will be there. And he will do so with a rare combination of passion, intelligence and literacy. So welcome to Scone, our wild colonial boy, <laughs> our endless and exhilaratingly angry <laughs> Kerry O'Brien. <laughs> I'm, I'm, of, I'm, still taking, of, I'm still taking all this in, Philip. I'm not going to be able to answer a question for a few minutes yet. OK. Harry, <laughs> I want to talk about AAP up front, and I think the best way to do that is to start with your career, which in effect starts at AAP. So tell, tell us and the audience what AAP was, what it has done for years, and then talk to its the tragic fact that it is no longer mm. with us. Well, it was, uh, it was my vehicle into Sydney. Um, I, was, uh, 
I started my career in Brisbane in a small television newsroom, Channel 9 in Brisbane. I uh, went to a provincial newspaper from there for the best part of a year, which was the best part of my training as a journalist by far. But, uh, but immediately after that, I went to AAP. And AAP was a wire service founded by Julius Reuter. It was, it was uh, at that stage partly owned by Reuter which was the, the British service that was the first wire service. And he started, Julius Reuter started it with carrier pigeons reporting on the stock exchange in Berlin. Uh, but by the time I joined them, they were a relatively small newsroom of journalists based in Sydney in Wynyard House over Wynyard Station, the centre of Sydney. And we had 60 teleprinters bringing stories in from all around the world. And so our job was to act as a filter uh, for all of that global news coming into Australia and feeding it out to, to the people who owned us, which was the Herald and Weekly Times, the Fairfax Group, uh, the ABC was a subscriber, uh, and the only one, the only holdout was actually Rupert Murdoch, ironically, because Murdoch, of course, was being instrumental in closing it down now. And so that essentially brought all international news into Australia, other than from, and uh, including most of the radio service. Uh, I went there in 1967 and it had been going for uh, maybe 15 years up to that point. So very long history. And, uh, and uh, I was very quickly told that the two key, the most important elements were speed and accuracy. You were pitching against the other wire services. Uh, there, were, there were two American services, there was a French service, they were our key uh, rivals and at any given moment of the day or night, there was a deadline somewhere in the world. And we lived or died, in a way, uh, on the time that appeared at the top of each cable. So the correspondence around the world would feed into the central agency and it would then be disseminated around the world. So I was sitting on the desk uh, when Robert Kennedy was shot. I was sitting on the desk when Martin Luther King was shot. Uh, and, uh, and everything had to be accurate, but everything had to be fast. And it was a part of the lifeblood. It, it was, and particularly for a country like Australia that was so isolated from its culture at that time and its connections to the other side of the world. We were completely reliant on, on Reuter and AAP for that news. We also fed Australian news back to Reuter for dissemination around the rest of the world. And, uh, and then, um, then it took on domestic reporting. And uh, we started with a parliamentary service uh, and, uh, and, and then we became... I mean, every newspaper and the ABC, they all, had their, they all had their resources, but they also had their limitations. And so the whole idea of the agency was that it would plug the gaps. It would be doing the legwork on all the stories that the individual news organisations could not resource for themselves. And so it became a very important part of the lifeblood of domestic journalism within Australia. And it's built and built and built, and it's really been quite... I think it was uh, over 200 journalists when they, uh, when they announced it was closing. So how those gaps are going to be filled now, I have no idea, but to me it's an act of vandalism. And it's been suggested that the main motivation for closing it down uh, was because it was feeding many smaller news organisations that I, I guess were a sort of fly in the eye of the Murdochs and, uh, and of the Nine Group, which is now, of which Fairfax is now a part. 
And those smaller organisations are much more reliant on it than the big ones. Like The Guardian, for example. The Guardian yeah. is a classic example. Yeah, yeah. Crikey would be another one. Uh, so it, it's, its loss will be felt. And yet the whole purpose of its existence was about providing um, a, um, uh, a fundamentally economic service. I mean, it was, it, the whole purpose of it was the efficiency of it. It was a relatively cheap way of plugging all the gaps. So it was the shared news, very straight down the middle. And, and often you would see, as a byline, you would see, if it was the Herald, you'd see by Billy Bloggs and AAP. So Billy Bloggs might have been out there running around getting the, getting the colour and getting, um, and getting uh, the, 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 the flesh, much of the flesh, but the basic reporting often was coming from AAP. So it's going to be another blow to journalism in this country at a very bad time. I uh, did a broadcast with Margaret Simons the other night and I, and I wanted to explain to the audience at LNL and to the audience here, what the significance of that all too familiar AAP meant. Yeah. Uh, I suggested to Margaret that if the ABC was slightly better funded, and Rudd's picked this up as well, perhaps it could pick up and run a, a form of the AAP. Yeah. And uh, feasible, do you think? Oh, well, there's a big, there's a big if there, Philip if it was given the adequate funding. Uh, I mean, it would still have been a relatively... It, it would have been a fairly costly exercise, but because it was feeding out to so many different organisations, that's where the efficiency lay. Uh, to be able to trust any government uh, to, main, to, to, A, release and then maintain that kind of... Uh, it would have to be as a separate funding batch so it could be identified as for the agency service, the agency part of the ABC's work. But you'd have to be deeply suspicious about uh, whether that uh, money was going to be sustained. I mean, the ABC has had constant cuts. I want to circle back to the ABC. AAP, A ABC, but in the middle, let's talk AFP. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> the AFP has been a very good source of leaks to the ABC. And therein lies the irony. Uh, the AFP raid on the ABC was just an absolute scandal, uh, as it was on Annika Smethurst of uh, the, Herald, uh, the, the Herald Sun in Melbourne, whose home was raided, which makes it much more personal and much more intimidating. I mean, at the ABC you had John Lyons walking around with the cops as they were doing their searches of computers and so on, and he was tweeting their every movement. And when they realised, because... Somebody from out there, they hadn't woken up themselves. Somebody else from the AFP outside had to tell them that they were being reported as they... <laughs> um, but they couldn't work out how to handle that one, so they had to let him keep going. But the, the ramifications of that, I think, in the context of what's happening with democracies around the world today is nasty and it, is, it can't be exaggerated. Uh, and, uh, and the ABC has lost one legal battle over it. Uh, to try and have the whole process stymied. it. Uh, I've got no doubt about what that was for, and it came immediately after the election. You know, there's a limit to my belief in coincidence. Um, it was to intimidate. It was to intimidate journalists and it was to intimidate whistleblowers. And you interviewed 
Bernard Caleri on your show the other night, and Bernard Caleri, uh, I mean, there is another terrible example of the erosion of our liberties in this country. And there comes a point where ordinary people, all of us, have to really take stock of what democracy is and what democracy has given us and why we should regard it as precious, as precious even with its deep imperfections, and put together the, the building blocks of that democracy. And one of the building blocks, outstandingly, is a strong media. And where you have a strong media, there's a chance you'll have a strong democracy. Where you have a weak media, you will absolutely have a weak democracy. The, the tendency towards greater secrecy in government, less transparency, is profound. And just, what, just, just look back at the, at the number of changes to uh, legislation in the name of national security that are taking things from us that will almost certainly not come back. It's the kind of field that once something goes is eroded, it does not come back. And uh, the, these things can be ephemeral. They can be hard to actually put a picture to. And we're all in busy lives. We all have our carry our, our kind of burden of anxieties in this day and age and a lot of it is concerned for kids, a lot of it is keeping your job, it's not knowing the future, it's trying to deal with drought. We all have our massive preoccupations and, uh, and it's hard for us to keep track of these things. So um, I, I think that if the, these raids are allowed to go through, I, I doubt that, I, I mean I, I find it impossible to believe that any of the journalists who'd been fingered in these raids would end up in jail, but they could. I think the government got a little bit of a shock when it chanced its arm on these and realised that there was, well, for a start, that their friend Rupert, even their friend Rupert, was going to take exception to this. But, but you know, erosion, the nature of erosion is that unless you remove the source of the erosion, it just keeps happening. And we all know about rust. Bernard Kalari was sitting in the studio the other night. We were discussing his book, which blew the whistle, or rather the, the trial of he and uh, Witness Kay, who blew the whistle on our bugging of the officers in East Timor during the negotiations for oil, gas, and as it now turns out, helium. And would you believe... As I was talking to Kalari, he could only write the book in England at Cambridge who gave him room beyond the reach of Australian law. As he sat in the studio with me, I was asking him questions I knew he was not allowed to answer because that was important to identify the areas in which he had to shut up. But even where he was answering, the lawyers, the ABC lawyers, fearful of further repercussions, are sitting in the studio with us, nodding and shaking their heads. Kerry, it is, you know, we've been around a while and we've been through some dark patches, but the attack on the whistleblower as a, as a notion, the attack on transparency, is surely without precedent. Well, in the case of the, the, raids on the, the raid on the ABC, uh, the whistleblower in that case um, had already acknowledged that he'd done it. So what was the point? What was the point of that? If it was in some way to strengthen the case, you don't need to strengthen the case against somebody who's already said, I've done it and now I'll tell you why I've blown the whistle on the alleged war crimes in Afghanistan by Australian Special Forces. 
Um, I, one of the other things, you, just talking about the ABC's lawyers sitting there, I mean, Caleri himself is a lawyer and would have known what he was doing. Uh, I, think, I think one of the... One of the real worries about all of this is that inevitably the ABC is going to be intimidated at senior management level. And, uh, and you know, I've, I've I had a long time in the ABC uh, in various... Uh, I came and went a couple of times, but going back to 1972 was when I started at the ABC. And uh, uh, mediocrity was writ large when I joined in the ranks of management. And uh, uh, this day tonight was uh, was a complete aberration. Somehow it escaped uh, a, from a somewhere. Miracle, really? Yes, that, that it actually mm. that it escaped the attention of senior management before they could shut it down, um, and they had to live with it, and it caused a lot of ulcers. And there was one attempt to directly censor the ABC, and there were other indirect attempts to censor TDT when I was there. And uh, and and. What I'm getting to is that is self-censorship to me is the worst, it's the most insidious kind of censorship. It's the kind that you can find very hard to measure and can do very little about if there is a fear. If a journalist writing a story uh, has a fear, even one that they haven't defined, that there could be a repercussion that was going to make life very unpleasant for them, it might, it might stop their career. If you've got that fear within management... Uh, it's corrosive, and uh, and and I hear, and I think uh, that we're seeing signs of that intimidation now. Let's talk now about the the loudest whistleblower of them all, and I have to declare an interest here. I regard Julian Assange as a friend. I was involved in a small way in the creation of WikiLeaks, and Patrice and I visited Julian. In the, uh, in the embassy, he now faces charges effectively of treason against a country of which he is not a citizen, of charges that make absolutely no legal sense. And he faces the prospect, what, of 150 to 170 years... Enough years for it not to ...in a super max the actual prison. number is. Even now, even now, he... Well, he's on trial, you know, in that glass box, uh, refused access, direct physical yeah. access to his own legal team. But up until a few weeks ago, he was in isolation for 23 hours hmm. of every day. I think the Australian response to it has been shameful on both sides of politics. <sighs> and I don't think even fellow journalists have stood up and made their feelings clearer, clear enough, but you have. Well, some have, some have. And uh, I said a few things last year when I was chair of the Walkley Foundation and, and since. But, uh, but the, to me, the strongest argument for Assange going free is that his actions were the actions of a journalist. And particularly in America, journalists are, are accorded some protection under the Constitution. And you would not see an American journalist being prosecuted by the American government in the way Julian Assange is. And Julian Assange was awarded a Walkley Award, a special Walkley Award in 2012, I think it was, for the WikiLeaks saga. Uh, and, 
And the, the, the stark contrast to his treatment now uh, is that all of the other journalists who were involved with the dissemination of the WikiLeaks material in mainstream journalism institutions right around the democratic world, certainly, um, no one is going to be prosecuted. None of those, the editor of The, the Guardian and, and the big American papers and so on, none of those are being prosecuted. And, of course, the Americans uh, will try and maintain all the way through that, that he was not acting as a journalist. And he was. He was. He was an activist, but he was acting as a journalist. There are a lot of activist journalists around the place who don't face the threat of prison for 12 lifetimes. So it is, uh, it's, it's um, scandalous, the lack of response from the Australian government. I'm just fascinated as to what it was that stirred inside the heart of and the mind of George Christensen, Christensen mm. that he would take it up, but he did. So belatedly as Bob Carr and so belatedly as Rudd, but... Uh... And Gillard was Prime Minister when that all broke and she was, she joined the club after his Well, she, she, she joined the club in the sense that she didn't offer hmm. much of a critique of his treatment. Okay, now in the world, and I'm going to open this to, to, the, to the audience shortly, but in the world that you're describing, where the ABC is under incredible pressure, and yes, I, I've seen every day. I've seen self-censorship in operation. Uh, where AAP is gone, where the monopoly tendencies of media uh, are running at full steam ahead, we are told that the new technologies will fill the gap, that AAP can be in a sense compensated for by the phenomenon of what is known as citizen journalism. What do you think about that? I think that's complete rubbish. Uh, it's a costly exercise, collecting and disseminating news. And, and, and the craft of journalism is not one to be taken lightly. You, know, you, you learn that craft over a lifetime and you're still learning as you head to your grave. The smart ones, certainly. And that's another thing that's gone wrong with, with, uh, with journalism uh, everywhere is that part of the actions of proprietors seeking to cut back their budgets when they're cutting back newsrooms, the first target is the experienced journalist because the experienced journalist, funnily enough, is paid more. Uh, so the younger journalists coming through, and there are some fantastic young journalists coming through, but their mentors have been taken from them. I uh, benefited enormously from mentors right through my, my journalism. And, uh, and one of the things that the Walkley Foundation is trying to do is to start to build a mentoring program for those same young journalists who aren't getting it in their own news organisations. And the, and the Walkley Foundation relies entirely on, on grants from benefactors to function. And that is not the way it should be. So um, the, whole, the whole process uh, is, it's not under threat of collapse, but, but it is, it's, it's not a slow drip, it's a fast, it is a fast process of diminution of the quality uh, of journalism and to think that uh, people, you know, they may be smart people, they may be people, well-meaning people, 
But if they don't have the basic craft at their fingertips and if they don't have the resources, it just becomes a very random thing. And how do you know who amongst those citizen journalists you can trust? And I don't just mean that they might be pushing their own barrow. They might simply not be skilled enough to cover all the bases, tick all the boxes that are required to get news out into the public consciousness that can be trusted. One of my uh, producers leaves next week. His name's Stan Corrie. And he leaves after 45 years at the ABC, which must be close to a record. His mentor was Alan Ashbolt, who was a a towering figure in public affairs at the ABC all those years ago. You mentioned your mentors. Who were they? Well, the very first one was when I was a cadet at Channel 9 in Brisbane and his name was Charlie McCarthy and I thought he was an old man. I looked back later and realised he was probably about 48. (laughs) (laughs) And Charlie had been in the war. He'd been in the Air Force in the war and he was a rough... You know, he, he was not rough, rough, but, uh, but he called a spade a spade, um, big heart, uh, passionate about his journalism, and he'd been everywhere as a journalist. And one of the first pieces of advice he gave to me was, Kerry, while you're, while you're single and you can easily move around, experience of as many different forms of journalism as you can. And I took him absolutely at his words and resigned about four months later and, and went to print. I mean, it was the very early stages of, of television where print people were attracted to television and I was actually going the other way because I was fascinated. What I really wanted to do was experience print journalism. So Charlie was the first influence on me and I, I had a smart enough instinct to actually uh, realise that you, you, you could not so much put an old head on young shoulders but... but Keating calls it distilled wisdom. He was a classic um, user of, of the distilled wisdom of aged successful people or people who, who were good at what they did. And by that time of their lives, they had distilled what it all meant. And, uh, and they were treasure troves for him. And, and they have been for me. Norm McSwan, when I went to AAP, lovely guy, Norm, passionate, fiery, but he'd been, uh, he'd been a correspondent in Korea. He'd worked for all the big... Uh, he'd worked for, for the big London newspapers and he'd worked for Reuters. He used to walk the Panmunjom John Line uh, with, uh, with Wilfred Burchett in the Korean War. And Burfred, Burchett was a pariah, certainly with conservatives in Australia in those days, because he reported from the communist side. He was a communist. Uh, and the stories that Norm could tell... But he was a writer as well. He could write. Uh, and, uh, and so the two influences he had on me were just the stories, you know, that he told of the, the journalism, not just his journalism, but the journalism that he'd witnessed and the stories he'd witnessed, but his writing. And that stuff you can't buy. And, uh, and so there have always been instinctively people like that that I've looked to. The distilled wisdom of Kerry O'Brien and now... If Some questions from the audience, please. You gave the graduation address at the UTS in Sydney a few years ago, um, which we remember with fondness. And just two things I'd say. Um, every pursuit in life really is an apprenticeship, as you say. Well, that you implied. 
and we all benefit from mentors and otherwise. And um, um, educational institutions like the UTS in Sydney in particular that we have contact with, I dare say, becomes even more crucial that they educate their journalists to the highest standard. So what do you have to say about your part or other um, great journalists in the continuing education of our journalists? Well, I mean, my education as a journalist was all on the job. Uh, I didn't go to university. And, uh, and many of the prominent journalists leading up to, to my years in the game and during um, took the path of the cadet and didn't go to university. In fact, there were two uh, uh, journalism degrees in Australia uh, when I started. One was in Adelaide, which was where, it be, where the first, and the other was in Queensland. Um, I, I think, look, that, God, uh, what's happened with our universities? Are the universities doing, doing what they used to do best anymore? Have they lost their way? They operate on kind of uh, corporate business models. Um, the, the, I, I won't keep down that road because that would be three days before you just broke the surface. Um, there are too many communications and journalism degrees in Australia for too few jobs. Uh, I've felt for a while that, uh, that uh, a young person wanting to prepare for journalism would be far smarter to go for a general, a broad arts degree or an arts and something else degree and, uh, and virtually not touch the journalism itself and leave that to a concentrated perhaps six-month postgraduate diploma, something like that. Which would much, which the combination of which would much better equip a journalist to go. But then, that's also still premised on them receiving further training when they have their first jobs as journalists. And the ABC uh, is brilliantly set up to to train every young journalist coming through the system and to continue their training through their middle years. And it is severely limited in what it does and can do because of funding. That's another one of the casualties along the way that you do not see when you're watching your screens or listening on the radio. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think education, 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 absolutely, but quality education. And I think we're seeing less and less of that. Kerry, um, what can we do as, you know, seemingly very ordinary, weak citizens in a society to maybe stem the, the, uh, the erosion of that truthful journalism that you talk about? Well, I'd never use the word weak. I mean, the, the, it is a frustrating question for me to try and answer, and I'm sure Philip gets asked it all the time, what can we do? And you feel so lame saying, badger your local member, because there is such a depth of cynicism at the political level now, but from the politicians themselves and the, the political part, the machinery of the major political parties, and there is a sad high, sad level of cynicism in the broad public about the, about the nature and quality of our politics today. Uh, but nonetheless, they are still vulnerable to public, public opinion, as are news organisations. And I think the penny in the relatively recent past has started to drop about, uh, about the potential threat to the quality of democracy in this country that is posed by the Murdoch organisation. And uh, it doesn't matter to me who the proprietor is. Although Rupert is a particularly um, intense kind of proprietor, intensely involved kind of proprietor, 
and his editors certainly know what they're expected to do. It's not, it's not who the proprietor is. It is the fact that a single proprietor can own um, the vast majority of newspaper outlets in Australia. In Queensland, it is a virtual monopoly. And the same is true in some other states. But there is also a dominance, if not a monopoly. There is a capacity within that news organisation simply because of its size to shut down legitimate and valid debate and crucial debates in this country. But the penny has started to drop with some people. And this is a vulnerable time for News Corp as it is for anybody else. And I'm not suggesting boycotts. People make their own individual judgments about those things. But every loss of every subscription in this day and age in any news organisation is taken very seriously indeed. You do have uh, a capacity to make your presence felt, certainly collectively, and to a degree even individually, because the individual can, if, it's, if the mood is strong enough, the individual can become the collective. So we are not powerless, and we should never accept that we're powerless. I understand what it feels like to feel powerless, and we've got to resist that. And I think communities like this, you may come from, from different political shades and so on, but there are common interests amongst us all. And I think that a part of the hope in the absence of the capacity of the major parties to actually look to themselves, to look in the mirror and acknowledge that they are stultifying, they are dying on the vine compared to what they once were, and, but, but faced with their incapacity to actually do something about that, I think, I think um, we may find ourselves looking more and more to independence of the style of those classier independents who are in the lower house in Canberra now and who actually can have a voice. I mean, they, uh, the Gillard government was a minority government. This government is a bee's dick away from minority government, if you'll pardon the expression, that just slipped out. <laughs> it must, must be the influence of Patrice's beehives. But um, um, people... People like uh, the, the, the member for Indi who replaced, uh, I'm going to forget their names, uh, Ka- yeah, Cathy McGowan, uh, Zali Steggles uh, has a bit of class about her. And, 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 and if these people, I don't care what their personal politics are, if they are intelligent people, uh, if, if they have a strong streak of common sense amongst them, and if they have a sense of decency, and a, and a sense of what ethical behaviour and civility are, then there is a very constructive role for them to play. And, and if they are seen to do that effectively, there will be more of them. And the more it happens, the more impact back on the major parties. So it just, you, you, you can hold out, you've got to look for ways things might change for the better. You don't just give up. So um, hard one to answer. But, um, but look for like-minded people. And I don't mean... And there is a... There, you know, one of the things, Philip, I reckon that's, uh, that's, that's a worry today is we're becoming more polarised as a society. We're being led to greater polarisation. The likes of Donald Trump, he feeds off polarisation. Divide and rule. Journalists are being led to believe that you've got to be on one side or the other. That's bullshit. The vast bulk of journalists are not driven by ideology. They're driven by a passion for the truth, believe it or not. So, best I can do in the moment. Um, Terry, when you 
began talking about AAP, you talked about speed and accuracy. Well, my dear old dad began his career on the Daily Telly, age 14, and he said that the mantra was always, when in doubt, leave it out. My son, who followed exactly the path you recommend, he did an arts degree, he did a master's in journalism, one of his teachers, David Dale, is here today, trained at the ABC, and now works for the American news network, CNBC. He said the mantra, unlike his grandfather's, when in doubt, leave it out, is never wrong for long. Uh. So my question to you is what effect is this constant 24-hour news cycle having on journalism? You can see it. You can see it every day. If, you're, if you read your, your uh, news output, your, your, what you might call newspaper outlet, if you read it online, the, the mistakes just in, the, just, just in, the, in the, the spelling and the grammar, really basic stuff, phrases left out in the subbing process that, so that the, the sentence no longer makes sense at all. Uh, if, you're not even, if you're not even caring about that basic stuff, if you're not even caring about getting the spelling right, then the implication is that you're not caring that much about the other facts, about the facts of the thing, which is the vital importance. So there's a great deal of sloppiness, and I think most of that sloppiness uh, is because, of the, uh, because of, of the pressure on the journalists and what they're required to do. And when you see serious senior journalists uh, uh, not just going about the business of collecting the material they will need to write the best story they can for the following morning's newspapers, but they've got to also file instantly for their online stuff and they might have to update that filing two or three times in, that news, in their own personal news cycle before their main story goes to air in the newspaper, their work is going to suffer too. I mean, you, you mentioned CNBC, CBC, uh, C, um, CNN, which was, uh, which was in its early days when I was a correspondent in America and I was with Seven then, and Seven had the Australian rights to CNN. So I saw inside that process, CNN, um, uh, you'd see all their senior reporters spending about three quarters of each day in front of a camera holding a microphone and they were being fed stuff by others. So they weren't really doing what they were best equipped to do, which was being on the phone, if not going out and seeing people, gathering their own news. They were relying on, on what we talked about with AOP, other people's work. And you've got to play... So the journalist who is fronting the camera is placing his trust in other journalists collecting it for him. So um, it, it's just another manifestation of, of the decline of the craft. And, and it's uh, a, a newspaper deadlines have come forward, for instance... Uh, the, the Financial Review's Friday deadline is 2 o'clock in the afternoon for the Canberra Gallery. So if a story... so And, and all of the deadlines have actually... In this digital age of great flexibility, the deadlines have actually shrunk. And so guess which day and which time of day the politician is going to get the bad news out that they know is going to come out anyway, but they want to control it. How about 6 o'clock on a Friday night? Not good. Could you hand me the Bible? Thank you. Uh, can, somebody, uh, can somebody help me? Oh, there we go. 
We haven't done much about the book, actually, Kerry, but that's because many of us will be in isolation shortly. <laughs> and we're going to need to fill in the time. This book will get you through a fortnight. <laughs> I know someone who's read it twice. <laughs> Kerry, it has been a great honour to have you here today. You're, a, you're my favourite Irishman. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, O'Brien. We hope you enjoyed that episode from the Scone Literary Festival 2020. There's lots more coming from Scone on the Rights for Festival podcast, so make sure that you go and subscribe wherever you get your pods or head on over to the Rights for Women website, www.rightsforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals. If you'd like to know more about Scone Literary Festival, go to www.sconeliteraryfestival.com.au. You can also follow them on Twitter and on Facebook. Don't forget to like, share, pass this around and maybe give us a rating or review wherever you're getting your podcasts so that other people can find us too. Thank you for supporting Australian Writing Festivals. Until next episode, keep reading, thinking and questioning. This podcast was brought to you by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting.